Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Jade. And today we're going to be talking about eating disorders in lockdown. So last time you and Bruna spoke about what lockdown has been like for people with a visible difference, perhaps particularly with a facial visible difference, like a cleft lip, for example. And this time, sticking with the theme of the impact of lockdown, we're going to focus on people with eating disorders. Very timely too, because it's almost exactly a year now since we first went into lockdown here in the UK. Sigh. (laughs) Yeah, big sigh. It's so strange to think back to this time last year, back to last March. Bit lost for words, which is not helpful on the podcast, but I'm so (laughs) glad that we're still doing this and that we have a dedicated episode to eating disorders in relation to lockdown. And we are joined by three incredible guests, all friends of the podcast. We have Helen West, a registered dietitian specialising in eating disorders, Gina Pegram, a research associate here at CAR, and Leah Newton, an occupational therapist and campaigner for eating disorders. Great lineup. Shall we get started? Yeah, let's. So, eating disorders, including binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, anorexia nervosa, avoidance slash restrictive food intake disorder, and other eating disorders that are encompassed within other specified feeding or eating disorders are serious mental health illnesses that affect people of all ages, genders, ethnicities and social backgrounds. And regular listeners will know we have spoken about eating disorders multiple times on the podcast through the lens of eating disorder prevention with experts such as Professor Bryn Austin, Diane Newmarch-Steiner, Michael Levine, as well as Dr. Scott Griffiths, Allegra Gordon and Gerald Carlzell. So yes, so many great people that we've discussed this topic with before. Yeah, so many of my favourites. And the reason we keep coming back to eating disorders on this podcast is for good reason. As many of our listeners will know, a mainstream of research that we do here at the Centre for Appearance Research is body image. And the field of body image research actually emerged from the field of eating disorder prevention. So there's a lot of overlap. Now, I know we've discussed this before on the podcast. I'm not going to spend too much time on it today. But both theory and evidence support that By working to improve people's body image, we can reduce eating disorder risk at the individual level by reducing unhealthy weight control behaviours, disordered eating, dieting, as well as shifting psychological risk factors for eating disorders like low mood. In addition, by working to reduce appearance-based teasing and bullying, as well as increasing body size diversity in the media and advertising, we are working to reduce some of the societal factors that contribute to eating disorders. And although, as we've also discussed on the podcast, negative body image is a public health issue in its own right, we've covered that, we are revisiting the topic of eating disorders now in the context of lockdown and the COVID-19 pandemic, because we know that people with eating disorders have really struggled during the past year, let's be honest. Right, and BEAT, the largest eating disorder charity here in the UK, have reported a huge surge in numbers of people contacting them for support via calls, emails, one-to-one web chats, 
and social media messages over the course of the past year. I actually spoke with a member of their media team last week, and they said compared to February 2020, so prior to the first lockdown here in the UK, they've seen a 173% increase in the total demand in services, comparing figures from January 2021. Wow, I'm I'm shaking my head just for those people that can't see me, and a similar trend has been reported by other major eating disorder charities, including the National Eating Disorders Association in the US. According to an article by the Washington Post, which was published at the end of December 2020, um, it found that calls to the National Eating Disorders Association support hotline were up by 70 to 80 percent. Then to add to that, there have been reports of steep increases in people requiring treatments and been added to extended wait lists and also making inquiries for private treatment too. There's just so many things that are being impacted, right? And there's also a number of large studies from countries including Australia and the US and the Netherlands based on data collected in the early stages of the pandemic in which people with eating disorders reported a deterioration in symptoms including increased restriction, binging, um, purging and other compensatory behaviours like excessive exercise, for example. And there's more research being published all the time at the moment on eating disorders and lockdown. There's been a lot of interest in this topic. But for now, for the podcast, to help us understand more about why the pandemic has been such a particularly challenging time for people with eating disorders and why it's exacerbated behavioural as well as psychological symptoms, we're going to hear from a friend of the podcast and registered dietitian specialising in eating disorders, Helen West. My name is Helen West. I'm a registered dietitian. I specialise in eating disorders and I work uh, at the moment mostly with young people who have anorexia um, in an inpatient unit in Brighton. Um, But I also work in private practice with adults and young adults who have um, all different kinds of eating disorders. Awesome. Well, it's so brilliant to have you on. So I know this is a huge, huge question, but in the interest of keeping it relatively brief for the podcast, I wonder if you could give us a bit of an introduction to what eating disorders are and what causes them yeah a big question (laughs) (laughs) um okay so I guess the way that I conceptualize eating disorders myself and I think sort of more broadly is you know they're, they're complex mental health conditions so they're both really not about food and about food um, but essentially they're complex mental health conditions where food is used to, to cope with difficult feelings essentially um, mm-hmm. and manage difficult feelings no matter what they might be so they have a broad range of causes um, and everybody's eating disorder is slightly different and comes across slightly differently expressed slightly differently so yeah they don't have a single cause um, we don't really know per se what causes an eating disorder but you know, they they just tend to have like biological, psychological, sociocultural causes. So the biopsychosocial model is mm-hmm. usually used to, to categorise them. So things like they have, you know, we think that they have genetic roots, um, things that can put your risk of things like personality traits and also um, kind of, yeah, social cultural things. So that things like internalisation of the thin mm-hmm. ideal, that sort of thing can contribute to it. So they're complex, I guess, is the short answer. Yeah, complicated and also quite individual. I think... What's been really interesting through this pandemic is we've seen so many reports about people with eating disorders really, really struggling. And I wonder what your take on this is. Why do you think the pandemic and maybe lockdown in particular has been 
a particularly difficult time for people mm-hmm. living with eating disorders. So, yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I think anybody working in the eating disorder services now would would, would completely agree with that. In fact, mm-hmm. um, sort of in terms of referrals, we had a number given to us by um, somebody in the NHS um case manager groups 300% increase in referrals for eating wow. disorder services um, over the last six to eight months um, and I think the bigger numbers from NHS England are huge so it's been like a um, doubling in urgent referrals um, across the pandemic and it's I guess it seems quite shocking uh, that the numbers are going up so much but I think anybody working in eating disorders can see why that might happen so we're seeing both an increase in sort of an exacerbation of symptoms in people that have already got a diagnosis of an eating disorder mm-hmm. and then also like a real increase in sort of new eating disorders so people that had previously not had an eating disorder um so things like disruption in people's normal routines um, and increase in isolation um because of the lockdown things like decreases in support and access to services have all been really big problems for people with um eating disorders and also things mm-hmm. like food insecurity increase in food insecurity so Mm -hmm. if you think about like um during the pandemic we had all of the issues within sort of food access to supermarkets going to you know people stockpiling that sort of things which can be really anxiety inducing for people that have eating disorders so there's lots of different reasons why the lockdown per se might have exacerbated eating disorders um and it's a big conversation that's been happening across sort of eating disorder charities with professionals Mm -hmm. just noticing these big rises um, it's something that I recently was looking enough to contribute to a chapter on um, the impact of the pandemic on eating disorders and obesity. So um, with people with lived experience, so people that uh-huh. I work with eating disorders, um, and there's a few good researchers that did that. So Lauren O'Connell is one, Gwenda Quigley, and I know that you know Ollie Williams because he's yeah. been on your uh, podcast before talking about weight stigma. But um, that chapter is going to be published open access in April as part of the um, Policy Press Rapid Response Pandemic Series. And that goes into detail of all of in really more detail really of all of the reasons why the pandemic has contributed to sort of this massive increase because it's not just about the the situation that people are in I think as well it's about the messages the increasing messages that we mm-hmm. were receiving from the government and you know if you think about things people were talking about like lockdown glow-ups and the messages from the government about this sort of the the impact of high weight on COVID risk the, the response to that from the government all of these things have contributed to people's anxieties about you know food bodies exercising that kind of thing so there's been yeah a massive increase in eating disorders new onset also people's symptoms and it's been yeah it's been really difficult obviously for people that have eating disorders but also Mm. for services that are really underfunded yeah I mean I can only imagine and something that you mentioned there that I think is not spoken about enough in the context of eating disorders is food insecurity. And I know there's mm-hmm. a couple of papers now starting to come out looking at the associations between food insecurity and eating disorders. And I think it's so, so important because eating disorders so often get that, um, it's like a middle-class condition, right? Like it's, yeah. it's like a rich people mm-hmm. thing. And I think yeah. understanding and breaking some of those stereotypes and understanding how eating disorders can affect anyone is just so important and that yeah. I just think that that relationship is something that's um I'm glad people are starting to do that work yeah I, I totally agree I think I think it's something yeah that I've been interested in for a long time and I think when you um you work with people that have experienced food insecurity mm. like sort of in early life and you see the impact that that's had sort of later life or even you know during the pandemic immediate food insecurity yeah it becomes really apparent and really obvious I think to people that work in services why that that link might occur mm-hmm. but it's something that isn't always considered 
Yeah, and I know you and I have spoken about this before, but there's the other aspect of you often see cases of trauma coming through with people with um, yeah. with eating disorders as well, and people refer to the pandemic as a collective trauma and a collective experience that people are going through that's very unsettling. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the levels of uncertainty I mm. think are really you know, are really difficult to deal with for a lot of people. So that, again, is another reason why it's sort of maybe contributed to this increase. Yeah, but yeah. for sure. So I'm curious, because I know you're, you're a registered dietitian working with people with eating disorders. So, and we know that eating disorders are not just about the food. They're not, the food is no. not much a symptom, but healing one's relationship with food is part of the recovery process. So yeah. I wonder, I'd love to hear how you support people in your work and then if you have any tips or advice for people who are maybe wanting to support a friend or a family member who are currently living with an eating disorder or struggling with their relationship with food yeah so it can be it I guess the support that is sort of appropriate or is offered it really depends on one the eating disorder that people have obviously eating disorders that we, we tend to default to anorexia I think but you know mm. there's lots of different types of eating disorder um but I guess um, from my perspective, it's it's maybe supporting people. I'm trying to get to know people's eating disorder, getting to know how people's eating disorder manifests for them, what the, you know, the, the function and, and mm-hmm. the, the reasons for the, the behavior that's that's sort of been expressed around food. Um, and then in really simple terms, my work involves supporting people to stabilize their eating so whether that's you know increasing the amount that people are eating to if they're restricting or just stabilizing eating patterns so people aren't like restricting and then binging but most of it's about just supporting people to stabilize their eating patterns in a way that that um, they can manage and then it would be sort of yeah working alongside other members of multi the multidisciplinary team to kind of get to the bottom of the reasons why um, that those things are happening so from a support process for me, I work on things like weight restoration, sort of nutrition rehab, making sure people have the, the nutrients that they need um, and trying to do that in a way that supports people's health. Um, and then working with a wider MDT to mm-hmm. get to the bottom of the reasons why those things are happening. Um, I mostly work with anorexia. So, again, my brain really defaults to anorexia mm-hmm. when I'm thinking about these things. Um, and we certainly have a lot of people with us um, in the hospital at the moment who um, have really been hit hard by lockdown um and so a lot of people that have lost a lot of weight during lockdown and quite physically unstable because of that um but yeah that's the work that I would do with individuals and then I guess advice that I would give people who and I think this would be a lot of people thinking about the the sort of the stories and experiences of people that I've been working with recently who whose family members have noticed or become concerned about people's eating behaviors and Mm -hmm. and maybe health because of their eating behaviors um is just to reach out for support. I think there can be a lot of shame around eating disorders and a lot mm-hmm. of fear. Um, and I think particularly if um, when you're close to somebody, there can be, it can cause a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of maybe reaching out to support for your GP and your doctor is always the first port of call, but sort of from, you know, a perspective of actually helping people, there's loads of really good resources on like the BEAT website. Um, there's a support line for family members from BEAT. There's um, mm-hmm. sort of advice leaflets of how to sort of approach difficult conversations with people that have eating disorders. And there's loads and loads of groups of parents out there that, um, that you know, parents and also um, family members and friends that you can speak to in terms of support groups. So I would reach out to people that have experience of supporting people with an eating disorder and then also to your medical team to try and get them help um 
it's obviously more difficult when people are reluctant to receive help mm-hmm. um but again I think that's sort of just letting people know that you're there and you're worried and you've noticed rather than trying to police people it's probably the best advice that I can give yeah yeah I think that's really really useful and, and just reassuring as well that that um I think that's it's the uncertainty as a, a carer right like how do you support someone so just mm-hmm. Um, having a few signposts is always useful and we'll definitely link to um, some of those resources in our show notes as well so you know I can't let you go until I've asked my favorite question it's a bit strange in the context of lockdown I think I always give that preamble but as is tradition on the podcast we love to ask our guests what cake would you bring to our coffee morning and why (laughs) so probably the best way to think about it is What's your favourite cake and why? Oh, I, do you know, I forgot you were going to ask me this question. <laughs> and this is not the right answer, but I'm not I'm not a massive cake person. Like, don't always choose. Like, I choose a, a flapjack, mm-hmm. but a cake. I'm definitely a flapjack person, not necessarily a cake person. I mean, I don't know if I could say if it's a cake or not, but it will definitely go down well. I yeah, can say that. so... I'm not sure I'm fulfilling criteria, but I would probably bring a flapjack. And I think that's just because I, I don't really have really good reason other than that I really like them. them. I don't know if that's selfish. Yeah. Well, no, I think, I think that's how, <laughs> how it often, very often works. Um, especially if you get something you like and you know not many other people like, and you're like, oh, well, sorry, everyone. Who's uh, more for me? <laughs> me, but, yeah. I actually think flapjacks are probably more morning friendly than um, some other genres of cake. So yeah, I think they're an all yeah all day cake. I think you mm-hmm. say if they're a cake or if they are a cake all day treat. If they are a cake, because uh, somebody let me know. I don't I don't know if they're a cake or not, but yeah, <laughs> yeah that would be my choice. Yeah, that's lovely. Well, Helen, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast. No it was problem. Great to have you. Helen is always such a voice of reason. I think she's brilliant. And without dilly-dallying, because we've got a lot to cover, let's go straight to hearing from our next guests about the topic of eating disorder recovery through lockdown. Right, let's not dilly-dally and get straight in. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know where dilly-dally came from, but it just really, the word really came to me. I like it. I'm Gina. I'm a research associate at CAR um, within the Dove Self-Esteem Project team. I predominantly work on the development and evaluation of interventions to promote positive body image in adolescents um, and young children and that's through kind of community-based as well as online interventions. Hi I'm Leah, I work as an occupational therapist, Um, I also am a fitness instructor and I advocate uh, for raising awareness within eating disorders and I participated in Gina's study in um, the first lockdown. Brilliant. Well, a very warm welcome to both of you. I'm so excited for our conversation today. So we're going to be talking about eating disorder recovery in lockdown. And as Leah just alluded to, Gina has led a study on this topic. So launching right in, Gina, I wonder if you could tell us why it felt important to research eating disorder recovery in lockdown? Sure. So Like really early on, um, at the beginning of lockdown back last spring, there were some clear indications that the restrictions were having an impact on people living with eating disorders. Um, Within a few weeks, there were reports that BEAT, um, the UK eating disorder charity, was kind of completely overwhelmed um, with a huge increase in demand for its services. 
And then on social media, I read kind of many personal accounts of people sharing their experiences, um, and I was really drawn to those, um, yet there wasn't really any literature on it. Uh, so that sparked my interest, and I wanted to do something kind of about that. And of the research that was kind of getting underway at that stage, um, exploring kind of how people with eating disorders were impacted by lockdown, it seemed to be largely focusing on people with active eating disorders, so people in treatment, um, kind of with a clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder. And we noticed that there seemed to be less research specifically involving people with an eating disorder history, so no longer receiving treatment. Um, but we know from the research that recovery isn't a linear process um, and while someone might might kind of meet criteria for being maybe physically or behaviourally like recovered, um, psychological and cognitive symptoms often kind of continue and people f find that they need to be continually managed. Um, so we felt that there were kind of important public health and clinical implications of focusing on this um, kind of understudied, often maybe overlooked group that might kind of fall through the net in terms of research and treatment. Um, and finally, as well as this, um, we know that relapse rates are really high across kind of all eating disorder diagnoses. So we felt it was really critical to kind of study the experiences um, of this group in lockdown to kind of potentially reduce the risk of relapse during lockdown and any kind of future um, potential periods of social distancing as well. Super, thanks Dina. So I wonder if you could now give our listeners a bit of a top line on what you actually did, what did the research involve, who did you speak to and when? Sure, so um, I conducted in-depth interviews um, online, mostly around kind of an hour long. Um, I had 20 participants, mostly in their kind of 20s and 30s, mainly women. Um, I spoke to one man, uh, which is kind of reflective of the way that it often is in eating disorder research that the men are underrepresented and we know this is an issue for men too um, but it was uh, predominantly women my sample and we only recruited people living in the UK during lockdown so that was for some consistency as there's lots of variability globally in terms of kind of the restrictions in place at different points um, and in terms of when, uh, they took place uh, between June and August uh, last year. So just as kind of the first lockdown was being eased, but there were kind of localised restrictions. Um, and within the interviews, I asked participants questions about their experiences of lockdown, uh, their recovery, kind of about the challenges, any surprises, as well as any kind of learnings that they had. Okay, lovely. Thanks, Dina. Super helpful. So, Leah, I want to turn now to you. I know you were a participant in Dina's study, but before we get to your experiences of recovery during lockdown, I wonder if you could share a little bit about your eating disorder history. Um, I will try and keep this really brief. So I was diagnosed when I was 19. Um, I was diagnosed when I first went to university in my first year um, and I dropped out and came home and was put straight in services. Um, I was outpatient, day patient um, and then finally I was an inpatient um, but yeah I spent sort of the next six years living with it, um, kind of trying to get away from services, um, being put back in services, um, sort of convinced that I would just be able to get better on my own um that I was just unhappy and that when I was happy again I would eat and that would be, all be better so I kind of guess I searched for uh recovery for all of those years after 
um, and just maintained my eating disorder through it. Um, I guess I was existing rather than living for a really long time. And I did a psychology degree. So I did three years um, in Bristol and I lived at home for a bit and I lived in Bristol for a bit. Um, and then when I finished that degree after three years, I moved home again and declined quite rapidly um, and ended up as an inpatient for just less than a year. Um, and I think that was the time, well, that was the time when I first started to commit to some element of recovery, I guess, whatever that looks like. Um, I started to see it as an option and something that I could do something that I wanted to do I think I I really had hit essentially rock bottom um and that was when it started um I think inpatient treatment is a very sort of first step in someone's recovery it can be and for me it was exactly what I needed but it was very much kind of the scaffold of my recovery rather than um the real solid building blocks as such I think that's such an important point for people who go through inpatient treatment for eating disorders. It is very often that first step rather than the finishing line of recovery. So thank you for sharing all of that. I wonder now if you would mind sharing about where were you in your recovery more or less this time last year? So pre-pandemic, before we hit lockdown in the UK. So um I always think actually, and I thought this um, quite early on in the first lockdown, I think I probably said it to Gina, was that um, I felt really lucky at the place that I was in in recovery when this happened, because um, to be honest, any other year I would have struggled so so badly um and I you know I really do think about the people that are at all different stages of recovery because it was the first thing I thought of I was like wow if I had you know I really um I work I have a really supportive um like friendship network family network um and I've been stable in my recovery for a significant period of time um I know myself really well I know what keeps me well I know what isn't good for me um and it's taken years to get to this point and I yeah I think for me I was very lucky that this happened this year because I wouldn't have been quite as sort of strong and able to deal with it and manage it as I have been um so yeah it's it was yeah I mean it was just a whole another challenge but I had kind of the I guess the strength within me to manage that, which I potentially wouldn't have had um, months, years before it actually happened. I'm so glad that you were in that stable place. I want to pick up on something that you mentioned. You said that you know what keeps you well and you know what makes things difficult for you. Can you share a little bit of what those things are, maybe particularly the things that keep you well are? Yeah, sure. I um I always joke about it, but um when I was in hospital, when I was leaving hospital, they encourage you to write a rap plan. Um, it's called a wellness recovery action plan, and it's not just within eating disorders. Um, you can use one in lots of different mental health conditions. Um, and I always laugh about it because when throughout the whole time I was in services and even when I was an inpatient and I was actually grateful to be there because <laughs> I really didn't want to be anywhere else at that point. But um I did you know tick the boxes as such I was quite like I need to leave I pretty much 
I think, asked every day to leave. <laughs> um, and the second that they would let me leave, I did. Um, so I, I, I essentially had to do a rap plan to leave. And um, it's kind of writing down what you're like when you're well, um, what you're like when you're not well, what people might want to look out for, um, those kind of things. And I kind of, yeah, jokingly did it, I guess, like not really taking it seriously, never gave it to anyone. So the idea is that you write it and you give it to people that know you or that don't know you or that you want to know to look out for you. Um, and anyway, so at the beginning of um, this kind of year or well, last year in lockdown, I rewrote my rap plan um, and I gave it to people that um, were around that knew me. Um, they weren't necessarily people that knew me when I was actually unwell. They were friends that um, have become friends since I've been well. But I find that really helpful because sometimes um, it's helpful for for people to know that, to hold that for you. Um, so it makes me feel a lot sort of safer that um, even if it's, you know, so there was definitely times in this lockdown where I felt like I just needed to tell someone that like I wasn't okay, but actually it wasn't something they needed to worry about. It was just that I wasn't okay. And I think for very early on in recovery, I found that really hard. I found it hard to tell people that maybe like I wasn't feeling that great or I wasn't having a very good day because I felt like I always had to act or looked like I had everything together. Um, and I mean, you know, I talk about this a lot now about how you don't always have to have everything together and you don't always have to be okay and you don't always have to have good days and actually kind of empowering yourself with that knowledge and then empowering people that look out for you is really crucial in actually supporting and building on your recovery um, and making you kind of more sure of actually like I, I can be in recovery and have a bad day and I can be in recovery and not be okay. And that's okay. <laughs> I think that's so, so powerful to hear that you can be in recovery and struggle. You can be in recovery and have a bad day. You might not feel great all the time. I think that's, yeah, just so useful to hear. And I think it goes against that maybe not so helpful narrative that recovery is this shiny, glossy, um, perfect thing. So one more question before we return to the research. We are now in our third national lockdown here in the UK. I wonder for you, in terms of your recovery, have you found or noticed any differences in how you felt over the three the three different lockdowns? Yeah, I think um, in lockdown one, like everyone, I panicked. Um, I panicked for so many reasons. I panicked for all the reasons that we all panicked about, like toilet roll. <laughs> um, but then I panicked that I wasn't as well as I thought I was because um, I, like everyone, had all the external stuff stripped away. And it was this realisation and I guess this fear that my recovery was strong and I was OK because of external stuff. And that actually if I had all that taken away, was I actually OK? Um and that was something which I hadn't even considered because none of us had ever considered that we wouldn't have everything that we needed or everything that we normally had access to. Um, and the last time that I was, um, I guess, isolated, I had chosen to isolate myself because of the eating disorder. I spent my whole eating disorder existence in isolation as such, because that was the only way to maintain the illness. Um, 
And I didn't want that anymore. I, you know, I didn't want to be isolated. I didn't want to not see people. I am a real people person. I thrive off human connection. Um, and so I was quite like, how am I going to do this? Um, and yeah, the last time I had been alone was when I had really declined. Um, and I chose to live alone, but actually I chose to live alone knowing that there was going to be a pandemic. Um, so, you know, I, I know we sort of like, I spoke about this with a few people in the sense of it was another step in recovery, which I guess I didn't think that I would ever go through, but actually I'm really happy I have because it has, now we're in lockdown three. So, um, what a year later, um, I feel even stronger in my recovery knowing that I can still be well and I can still be okay and I can still be happy with everything stripped back. And actually that's been really empowering and possibly one of the most important parts of my recovery so far. And I, and I guess um, that's why I just think that, you know, going back to recovery, not being linear, you just don't know what's going to happen. And and just like anything, you don't know what you as a person is going to have to go through. Um, and everything that you go through, you just pick up new things and new skills and um, that increased kind of understanding of yourself, I guess. Completely. And it's so encouraging to hear. So just thank you again for sharing that with us on the podcast. So I want to transition us now back to the research. And so this was a qualitative research study. We do mention qualitative research on the podcast, but I don't think we've ever really gone into the the into the weeds with the research methods. So Gina, I wonder if you could give us some insights on that qualitative research method. How do you analyze the data? Yeah, sure. So there's lots of steps involved um, in qualitative analysis, which people don't often realize. So I can certainly kind of share my process and experiences. But um, the first thing is to kind of record all the interviews, listen to them all and transcribe them. Once transcribed, um, I read through them a few times to familiarise myself with the kind of data and then used an analysis method called thematic analysis um, and a particular approach that was developed by Victoria Clark, who has previously been a guest on the podcast, and Virginia Brown. So their approach involves coding the data line by line to pick out kind of the salient bits of information to begin to reduce like large amounts of transcribed data into more kind of small, meaningful chunks um, in kind of a systematic way. Um, And codes will then be refined as the analysis progresses, maybe grouped into code clusters uh, to build up a picture and finally pull them into what we call themes. So these are to kind of best represent the ideas coming up across all of the interviews um, and illustrate kind of the key learnings from the interviews to answer the research questions. So in this case, we had kind of three main research questions. So we were exploring how people with an eating disorder history responded to and managed the experience of lockdown, um, what the experience of lockdown meant to people's eating disorder recovery, and also what people have learned from the experience of lockdown to kind of move forward with their recovery. Thank you for laying that all out so clearly. So I know the study isn't published, so we can't give too much away, but I wonder if you would be happy to share a few highlights from the study, a few of your findings, a few things that you've learned from these interviews. 
Sure, yeah. So in terms of where I am in that process that I just discussed, I'm at that kind of final stage um, where I'm developing my themes, but there's still some refining going on at the moment, um, but I can share kind of a snippet with you. Um, so it was interesting that the group that I interviewed they all reacted really quite differently, um, even within their own narrative of their own experience. They responded kind of differently at different stages of lockdown. But what was consistent was that most participants experienced kind of um, some kind of resurgence in eating disorder thought patterns or behaviours during lockdown. Um, but what kind of I found and really speaks to what Leah has just spoken about was um, when people were discussing the management of these symptoms, um, many kind of reflected on the successful management of this as kind of reinforcing their recovery. Um, and lots of them viewed lockdown as kind of almost a test of their recovery. So a very unwelcome kind of hurdle that they overcame. And I think that comes out a lot in what you've been uh, saying, Leah. And again, um, one of the key things that came out a lot was the idea that being in lockdown kind of forced people to think about their recovery a lot more, uh, to self-reflect on their coping strategies much more than they did before lockdown in kind of their busy, go, go, go everyday lives where they had those things that Leah, that you spoke about, those external things that would kind of support them. And so some people found that the positives in, in this kind of introspection and kind of proactive self-management uh, the lockdown forced them to have was an opportunity to almost like lean in to their recovery, which they might not have done before. Um, and participants also spoke about kind of stresses that they were dealing with. They might have been kind of related to COVID or, or unrelated, but they were dealing with it within kind of the um, confines of lockdown. And so the fact they didn't have these usual coping strategies like seeing friends or going to an exercise class or that kind of thing due to the restrictions so now they were on their own they had to find another way to manage these challenges and I think like this really came out um, in what you experienced Leah as well um, in, in our conversation together before um, another really interesting insight was around the different strategies used within lockdown to regain a sense of kind of stability safety and comfort so for many people I spoke to this involved kind of implementing routines and structure, um, but there was a really fine line between this being useful or becoming harmful. So if it was kind of regimented um, and based on rigid rules. So uh, participants spoke about the challenge of like finding these helpful strategies. And so some did fall into the old kind of eating disorder behaviours um, as a way to maybe feel in control or to self-soothe. Um, and and some found that they were forced to explore new ways to soothe themselves so what, to avoid going back to these maybe like less adaptive, maladaptive strategies and kind of redefining kind of their self-care and that, how they look after themselves and becoming more kind of compassionate towards themselves. So we found this really broad picture, um, a variety of experiences, which makes sense and would be expected because we spoke to people with completely different um, eating disorder diagnoses and histories and presentations as well as kind of varying lengths of time in recovery so it was quite we saw differences for people that maybe had been in recovery for much longer than others so that would kind of be expected but 
Obviously, as we've mentioned, like now we're in lockdown three. So I think something to note is the timing of the interviews. So they took place last summer when lockdown was kind of easing, that first lockdown. And I think I think most of us were hoping for 2021 to be different um, and didn't expect to still be sitting here in February as we're recording this in lockdown at home. So I can imagine we may have found some different themes emerging if we were to run um, rerun the interviews today. Um, there was kind of a shared anxiety and dread in within the people that I spoke to about the potential of going into a second, let alone a third lockdown, with people mentioning that kind of, yes, they coped all right uh, this time round, i.e. in the first lockdown, but things might be different in winter. And a lot of people mentioned that kind of that worry about that. Um, and any research on that is yet to be published. Um, but it has come up in various kind of news articles I've read about mental health more generally. And so it's certainly something to be mindful of, like in terms of our findings and our themes. There's so much in there. It's so interesting. And as you say, it would be fascinating to do those interviews again with the same participants, what, seven, eight months on um, to see how they fared through lockdown two, lockdown three and see how they're um, and to see if there's been any differences or any changes. So, yeah, really, really important work. Leah, I wonder if I can ask you, was there anything um, that really resonated or didn't perhaps, or if you just have any other thoughts you want to share? I feel like all of it did. And <laughs> I could, um, yeah, I could talk forever about all of this um, because, yeah, I find it so interesting and I'm so passionate about talking about it generally. Um, I guess actually it was interesting thinking about like control as well. Um, I was interested hearing what you were saying about people kind of um, planning out and things like that. Cause I definitely did that in the first lockdown. I've got, I've still got in like notepads where I was like, right, nine o'clock, I'm going to do this and 10 o'clock to kind of like break down that day, I guess, and make it feel uh, sort of not quite as dauntingly long. Um, and I guess as well, for me, my recovery sort of I was unwell for so long and then my recovery accelerated really quickly um and then we went into this lockdown and it was like I suddenly stopped and I was like oh my god like did I actually get better did I actually did recovery actually come or was it just this temporary period of like um betterness um and actually I'm not okay and this is kind of going to really throw me now um you know things like and I think a lot of the study probably can relate to um anybody as well in the sense of things like body image um and actually now we're in lockdown three my body image is 100% poorer in a lockdown than it is out of a lockdown um that's the kind of theme that I guess I've like picked up on um and so in lockdown one I that you know I had poorer body image and it was like trying to find how I was going to navigate that and how I was going to manage that without um, eating disorder behaviours or falling back into my eating disorder. So it was about finding tools to, um, I guess, add to the ones I'd already sort of built up in in conjunction with external stuff. It was like, OK, all that external stuff is gone. 
um, I have poor body image and I have nothing to distract myself with as such, what am I going to do about it? Because I'm not willing to um, go back to my eating disorder. And so actually I forced myself, I was forced to find different tools, which actually um, I would never have done before because I wouldn't have had to because I would have been able to use the tools that I had in the environment already. Um, so I think it was about like, you know, a lot of us, everybody was searching for some element of control. That's what we were all doing. And so that's why for eating disorders, it was such a dangerous time because the natural thing for people with history or with eating disorders is, is to control. And that control comes in so many ways, but majority is food. And, um, so it was about, okay, if I'm not going to control food, I'm not going to control my body. What can I control? And that is something that I will like take forward for sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that. And I think what's important on the topic of control in the context of eating disorders is that it's very much an illusion of control, right? Which is precarious and for many people turns into a loss of control. And regardless of how much control you have over your body, what you're eating, how you're exercising, you still may not have any control over uh, other things going on in your life. Gina, I want to go back to you. And so in the UK at the time of recording, we've just had our roadmap out of our third national lockdown, um, hopefully our last. So I'm curious to what your thoughts are of the implications of this study on eating disorder recovery in lockdown as we're leaving it. Sure. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of timely to be talking about it this week. Now we've had kind of this roadmap, there's like this buzz and excited energy around the dates and and lockdown lifting. But I've also read some articles just this morning about um, the anxiety around going back to normal after just managing to kind of adjust to this way of life. Um, And this was echoed by like my participants last summer when restrictions were easing. But this time, there's a sense it's even more overwhelming um, after so long living this way. Um, and with this kind of unfortunately, I've already seen kind of the rhetoric around losing lockdown weight gain before summer, as well as kind of other appearance pressures around this big release back to socialising this summer. So I think over the next few months, insights from this and kind of other research going on in this field is going to be really, really key. Um, But going back to your kind of question about implications beyond lockdown um, and kind of social distancing, um, we hope that these findings will kind of raise awareness of the difficulties experienced in lockdown for people in recovery from eating disorders and also kind of inform therapeutic as well as kind of public health and policy level strategies to reduce harm in future. Um, But the research also has exciting implications for kind of interventions, which is a huge part of what we do here at CAR. So when people um, were speaking about their coping strategies within lockdown, it was clear that principles from different kind of therapeutic approaches like CFT, so compassion focused therapy and ACT, um, acceptance and commitment therapy, which focuses on kind of psychological flexibility and mindful self-awareness and things like that. They were, these principles were kind of key to the management of recovery um, and participants kind of hoped to retain these beyond lockdown. So these could be key mechanisms to explore in interventions, as well as this idea of developing kind of a greater self-reliance on kind of these internal factors. Um, And so 
really one of the biggest contributions that we hope this research makes is the fact that you know it's not all doom and gloom like yes this period has really affected people it's been a real challenge and it's been really hard to manage but we also have insights into how this period actually kind of strengthened people's recovery with key learnings for the future, hopefully, um, not just applying to social distancing, um, also applying to kind of other uncertain or difficult situations, as well as to like the recovery process much more broadly. So I guess that's what we kind of hope the implications are of this beyond kind of lockdown as it's easing. That's great. Thanks, Gina. So before we get to our final fun question, you know what's coming. I would love to hear from both of you if you've got any additional eating disorder recovery tips, either from the research or personal experience. I know we've covered a lot already throughout the course of this conversation, but if there's anything else you want to share, and it doesn't have to be in the context of a global pandemic, just any general eating disorder recovery tips. Yeah, sure. So uh, thinking about tips that came out, I guess, of this research in lockdown, but also what we know about eating disorders and recovery more generally. Um, I think there's there's so much I could say here. Um, but I think uh, the thing that really stands out for me, especially at this time, is the concept of self-compassion. So at a really basic level, uh, self-compassion is about kind of being kind to yourself, um, accepting kind of inevitable ups and downs, knowing you're not alone and that you're only like you're only human, really. Um, but on a deeper level, um, we can think about principles from self uh, from compassion focused therapy, which integrates kind of traditional concepts of CBT with evolutionary psychology and neuroscience and really underscores like the it's a balance between three emotion regulation systems. So you've got the threat system, the drive system and the soothing system. And in relation to maintaining recovery, we want to ensure our soothing system is suitably kind of attended to um, with healthy like, adaptive strategies. Um, particularly relevant in response to threat because of that threat system. So in this case, like the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown, but also more generally kind of those things that come up. So there are exercises um, you can do to kind of be more compassionate towards yourself and that kind of nurture that soothing system. Um, And kind of individuals I spoke to discussed things like, for example, kind of breathing exercises, compassionate letter writing, but also just kind of the impact of just adjusting how you speak to yourself can be huge. So as an example, participants mentioned trying to speak to themselves like they would a friend. So to turn that kind of critical voice into a gentle kind of kinder one, um, which allowed them to kind of get a bit more perspective and acceptance of the situation and kind of practice that acceptance. Um, so cultivating like this self-compassion like it's hugely relevant in lockdown but it's also something that can be applied outside of the situation um, to support recovery and I think the really fascinating thing about self-compassion is that with something as basic as talking to yourself kindly you're literally kind of rewiring your brain to strengthen those neural connections to make those thoughts the automatic thoughts rather than kind of the self-criticism, perfectionism and kind of shame and things like that. And I could be here all day talking about this, so I'll leave it there. But um, it's just so interesting to delve into and it shows that there really is this scientific basis to this idea of the benefits of being kind to yourself and not beating yourself up rather than it being kind of a fluffy idea around like loving yourself, which often feels kind of so out of reach. 
I guess like picking up a bit on what Gina said in the sense of um, kind of accepting that you're going to have bad days, you're going to have bad days, you're going to have bad times. And actually, we all do that. We're humans. And so we're never going to have 100% good days. Um, And I think actually just in terms of my whole recovery, um, that was often why I didn't progress in it because I would have a bad day or I'd have a bad experience or um, something like that and then I would be like oh well I just I can't recover or I can't do it or um, I'm not well or things like that and actually I guess sort of rethinking that in terms of it's just a bad day it's just a bad time Um, I you know that that is the reality of it I think that's often in terms of stuff you read about recovery or perhaps people that talk to you about recovery that maybe haven't experienced it themselves um it's really dressed up as this like amazing life and actually life isn't always amazing and if you are sort of saying to yourself um I will only be recovered when I have an amazing life the reality is that you may never find that um, and that can be really disheartening but actually you can have an amazing life but it doesn't mean that every day is amazing and you'll feel amazing all the time um and I think sort of acknowledging that and realizing that for me was a as a real kind of game changer and I do do kind of recovery talks um at the hospital that I was at and this is one of the things I say and I I don't want it to sound like it's a negative like you know you're not going to feel good all the time but actually it's a reality and I think um if people sort of are aware of that it doesn't feel quite so awful if it happens you just kind of say oh this is a period of time and it will pass and it doesn't mean that I'm you know falling backwards it doesn't mean I'm horrendously unwell it just means it's a bad moment in time um so I would really yeah I think that for me has really strengthened and helped my recovery um and I guess on the back of that talking um I spent you know, I I know it's very, it's very different for people. And some people, um, when they have an eating disorder, never talk about it again. And that really works for people. Um, for me talking about it was really healing, um, to friends and family. Um, and I think allowing someone to hold that with you, um, and sort of saying, I don't need you to do anything. I just need you to listen. This is how I feel today, um, can be really helpful, um, in or out of a pandemic as if that's a thing. Um, so yeah, that, you know, that doesn't have to be someone that you're necessarily close with. It can be someone that you see it weekly or something like that. Um, but yeah, talking for me has been really healing. What a wonderful list of strategies and tips to end on. I think it's going to be so helpful. People can pick and choose, find what works for them. I think that's brilliant. And I have just enjoyed this conversation so, so much. So thank you both. Before I can let you go, we have to end with my final, very important Kate question. And that's tradition on this podcast. It's a little surreal now in the context of a pandemic, but still we're all very much here for it. So at the Centre for Appearance Research, we used to have our weekly coffee mornings where people would take turns to bring in cakes. So I would like to know what cake would you bring? (gasps) Shared cake, imagine. Everyone would have to have their own cake now. A pandemic-based cake question. <laughs> so I would say I've got two two options for you. It depends whether you want a homemade one or not, because I would really go for a lemon drizzle, but I'm not brilliant at making them. So if you don't want homemade, 
I'll bring you a lemon drizzle. If you want homemade, I really do make a good carrot cake. Um, so I only make it for special occasions, which hasn't happened in the last year. So I'm due a special occasion carrot cake. <laughs> so let me know. <laughs> I feel like I'm on like Dragon's Den, like pitching my idea. I know it's kind of got a little out of hand. <laughs> like trying to sell my cake. <laughs> Gina, you're up. <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, this uh, it really makes me miss our in-person coffee meetings, but um, virtually I will bring you, I think, some of my signature Biscoff or Oreo brownies. Oh, she's blown me out. <laughs> I need to just leave now. I know, I'm sorry, I wasn't meaning to. <laughs> they are my signatures. But yeah, it's not necessarily a cake, and I don't think we'll go into that debate now, but everyone loves a homemade brownie, even if it's not a cake per se. Well, cake or not, an all-round crowd pleaser, and all of those treats sound incredible, so I hope we can sample them one day soon. Um and on that note, I think it's time to say thank you so much for joining me on Appearance Matters podcast. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. That was great. And I really loved that the interview included the perspective of both Gina and Leah um, and that it focused on eating disorder recovery because we haven't really talked about that much on the podcast before. Um, and I love the tips as well. They were, they were great. Yeah. I couldn't agree more Jade. I think it was such a nice conversation. I know I got a lot from it and I mean, I think there's just so much more to to say on the topic. I know at one point we'll, we wanted to explore the idea of what do we mean by recovery in in the world of eating disorders but that is a whole other conversation in its own right so we're going to save that maybe for another time so for now I think what's left to say is a huge thank you to our guests Helen, Leah and Gina for joining us on the podcast and being so brilliant and sharing so much. Great yeah there's just so much to cover in one episode I find every time but I know we say it all the time. (laughs) Right, I know. And it you just discover more great things to cover through one avenue. So yeah, completely agree. And for anyone affected by eating disorders, we have included links to some sources of support in the show notes, as well as some other podcasts and resources. Yeah, please do check them out. It's always good to to have that information at your at your fingertips if you need it or or think you might. With that, thank you so much for listening to Appearance Matters the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and gives us a little boost. It really does. And remember, you can keep up to date with our centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in our bio. Until next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs) I always wave. I I know, always. (laughs) I still wave on Zoom calls at the end of every meeting. I'm the only clown there waving right at camera I love it it's it's just a real thing it makes me feel good when I wave I feel like I'm doing what I'm saying I know I I enjoy it and the minute we start going back to in real life meetings I will still wave (laughs) at the end as you leave the room bye everyone bye Bye -bye. (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh that's a vibe I like it anyway (laughs) 